Um, well, good morning. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City, and today we are continuing, much to your surprise, our series on the book of Acts. We've been walking through it since February, and just to give you a little bit, we're going to, at the end of this week, so this, we're going to push pause on Acts for the next four weeks as we walk through the Advent season. So the next four weeks, we're going to be um, doing an Advent series um, Sunday night, next Sunday evening, virtually, we'll gather for an Advent gathering. We'll share more information on that in a little bit. But what we're doing today, we're finishing Acts chapter 15, which really is the portion where we get to the very beginning of what is Paul's second missionary journey. And it's going to leave us for January to pick right up in Acts 16, where Paul is now in the midst of his second missionary journey. And I don't know this week how everyone's week was. I know that holidays and Thanksgiving and time with family, it can be wonderful and it can be beautiful and it can be so hard. And I think sometimes, right, like one of the things that I think is really beautiful about the book of Acts and the stories that are told, especially in the New Testament, is that like we get some really human moments. The past two weeks, we've been working through Acts chapter 15, these moments where Paul and Barnabas and the early church are working really hard to figure out like unity. How can they be a church of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and all of these different kind of backgrounds and ways of understanding religion and bringing themselves to Jesus and how can we all exist in one community? And we see them do this really hard work of finding unity. And today's story is a story of complete failure, that the people who were at the forefront of fighting for unity now cannot find it at all inside of their personal relationships. To go from the mountaintop of the Jerusalem Council in this big conversation around whether or not we're going to make the Gentiles become Jewish in order to become Christian and everybody to say like, no, unity matters more than uniformity. And then here we get to this moment and we see one of the two, two of the main architects of that unity that's established in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, have one of the biggest fights that you could imagine. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It's five verses in Acts chapter 15 that begin in verse 36. Luke writes, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. All through Acts 15, up until this moment, the early church is chasing after unity. And here, Luke signals that some time has passed in between the Jerusalem council in this moment when Paul and Barnabas return from that council to the church in Antioch. And in that time, Paul begins thinking about how he and Barnabas shared the gospel with all of these people in all of these cities on their first missionary journey. He thinks of people in places like Pisidian Antioch. 
the city whose landscape was dominated by an imperial sanctuary and where people would gather to worship the emperor as a god. He remembers proclaiming the gospel there in a way that revealed and then challenged their trust structures that the people had built their lives on. And he recalls the way so many people had turned away from worshiping these false gods and given their lives to Jesus. And so Paul suggests to Barnabas, in light of the Jerusalem council, in light of this new official stance of the church, that they should go and revisit all of the cities and people that they had visited and proclaimed the gospel to on that first journey. And according to Luke, Barnabas agrees. Barnabas thinks that's a good and right idea. And so they set about making plans for the trip. And one of the details they need to work out is who will go with them on the trip. Who's going to make up the team? Luke writes in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. John Mark. He'd been part of the church since its inception at Pentecost. Back in Acts 2, where Peter proclaims the gospel to a large crowd of Jewish people where thousands heard Peter's message and chose to believe in it, John Mark was one of them. John Mark's family hosted one of the very first house churches in Jerusalem. His family financially supported the apostles in their ministry. He grew up a kid in a family who were friends with those first apostles. And according to early church tradition, John Mark had as a spiritual father, Peter. Like someone pouring into him, spending time with him, discipling him. John Mark was led and discipled by Peter himself. When Stephen was stoned and persecution broke out against the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, John Mark was one of the Jewish people who fled Jerusalem, and he settled in Antioch, and he likely played an influential role in the formation of the church in Antioch. And he went with Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is believed to be John Mark's cousin. So as part of this conversation and conflict, you've got family issues as well. John Mark went with them on their first missionary journey. He traveled with them from Antioch to Seleucia, and from Seleucia to Cyprus, and from Cyprus to Paphos. He witnessed people, Jew and Gentile, respond to the gospel and give their life to Jesus. He saw and experienced supernatural miracles. He endured unimaginable hardship. And then in Acts 13, without any explanation from Luke, our narrator, he abandons Paul and Barnabas. 
Luke records that moment this way in Acts 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. That word, left, in the Greek, it means to withdraw. But its Hebrew equivalent gives more shape to the word. The Hebrew equivalent of the word means diverge and to be disloyal. John Mark didn't just leave. He disagreed with some aspect of Paul and Barnabas' ministry, and due to that, he responded by acting in a way that Luke described as disloyal. And that Paul, here in Acts 15, describes as desertion. Paul says that he deserted them. In Paul's mind, he deserted them when they needed him the most. And that word desert, deserted, throughout the New Testament, it can mean revolt. Luke describes John Mark's decision to return to Jerusalem as disloyal. Paul describes it as a revolt. This is why Paul thinks it's unwise to take John Mark on their second missionary journey. But Barnabas is family with John Mark. He's likely spent some time talking with him since their first journey. He likely listened as John Mark described being scared and young and immature. And in the midst of the hardship and trials that they were enduring, Barnabas likely heard John Mark confess that he panicked and left. And Barnabas, who we know as the son of encouragement, remember his name was changed to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he likely wanted to give John Mark, his cousin, a second chance. He likely wanted to give John Mark a second chance to prove that he was up to the task, that he could proclaim the gospel even when it's hard, even when the surroundings got hostile. And yet in verse 39, Luke writes, they, Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he, Paul and Silas, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Luke describes Paul and Barnabas's argument using a Greek word that when it's used in a medical context means convulsion or a word that refers to a person running a high fever. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, points out the Greek word carries overtones of severely heightened emotions, red and distorted faces, 
loud voices and saying things that are better left never spoken. Have you ever argued with someone like this? Have you ever argued with someone you love like this? When you're so angry, your face turns red. Your face contorts. And you're yelling, saying things that you know the next morning you're going to regret. I've argued like this with Julia. The person who I know loves me more than anything else in the world. The person who has extended unmerited grace and mercy to me so many times. The person whose love helps me know I'm okay. The person whose love makes Jesus' love for me believable. And I've chosen to argue with her like this. The times that I have argued with Julia like this are moments that I remember as being moments of profound failure. I wake up the next morning and I still feel the failure in my body. I feel heavy. I walk through the kitchen to get coffee and I struggle to make eye contact. I tell her I'm sorry and I ask for forgiveness over and over. I've never once, on the other side of an argument like this, felt good. Have you ever argued with someone like this? And what did you feel when the argument was over? This argument between Paul and Barnabas is a sorrowful event. It's a moment of profound failure. A moment that, through the rest of Paul's writing, seems like he looks back on with a bit of humiliation. Years earlier, when Paul first came to Jerusalem and the apostles were skeptical of him, Barnabas was the one who vouched for him. And after Paul had spent ten years in obscurity in Ephesus, Barnabas was the one who brought him to Antioch. They preached the gospel together, planted churches together, performed miracles alongside of each other, endured unimaginable hardship together, feared for their lives together. They just traveled to Jerusalem to advocate for unity together, and now here they are screaming at each other over who they're going to take on their next missionary journey. And instead of finding common ground, Instead of finding a way to be united, they separate. And they go separate 
ways. A quick aside. One of the beautiful things about God is that he uses our moments of profound failure. He can oftentimes use those for profound good. Somehow in God's story, Paul and Barnabas' separation means that they will now, instead of one team, there's two teams. It means that these two teams will visit more people, visit more cities, proclaim the gospel to more people, and plant more churches than they would have if they stayed together. It's a moment where in some senses we see the truth of the words that God really can use all things together for good for those who believe and are called according to his purposes. Somehow, in God's sovereignty, this moment of profound personal failure is still used to advance the kingdom in ways that it otherwise would not have. But back to the argument. What complicates their argument, at least to me, is that they both seem right. Or at least they both seem justified in their positions. These journeys are filled with hardship. They're fraught with danger. Sure, John Mark may have matured some. Sure, he may be begging for a second chance, just saying that he was young and immature and he panicked. But what happens if stones and rocks start flying around again? What happens if the crowds start threatening their lives again? What happens then? Will John Mark desert them again when they need him the most? And because of that, Paul's opposition to taking John Mark makes sense. And yet Barnabas is right too. Paul had needed Barnabas to stand up for him and give him a second chance when no one else would. And that's what Barnabas is trying to do for John Mark now. He's extending grace, offering forgiveness, willing to take John Mark at his word that he'll never act like that again. For Barnabas, encouraging and building into John Mark is worth the risk of taking him on the trip. And sometimes, when two people disagree on what's most important, in this case, loyalty or grace, or maybe loyalty and a second chance, when two people believe they're right and their position is justified, common ground is elusive and unity is unfindable. Which I discovered is actually a word this week because when I wrote it, I wrote unfindable and it didn't get underlined in pages. And so I looked it up and it's a word. It means cannot be found. This might seem like a strange thing to say, but I'm really thankful Luke and Court included this story in the narrative. How easy would it have been for Luke to just overlook this story? Or to find some less embarrassing way of describing why Barnabas and Paul end up with different partners on two different teams going to two different places. But he didn't. He didn't avoid the story 
And what makes it even more interesting to me is that Paul is arguably, other than Jesus, the most meaningful and influential person in the story of the early church, if not the history of the church. And Luke doesn't hide his imperfections or frailties. A few quick things to point out. One, Paul was an imperfect person used powerfully by God. That might be a word for someone here this morning, that we are all imperfect people and we can all be used powerfully by God. We are all imperfect, church, and we can all be used powerfully by God. Two, Paul's imperfections don't thwart God's plan. Out of this sorrowful argument, two mission teams are formed. If Paul's imperfections won't thwart God's plans, then ours won't either. Our mistakes don't prevent God from working out His good plan in our lives. Friends, God will work out His plan in our lives even when we make mistakes. And three, Paul's mistakes don't disqualify him from his calling. Paul will lead, as we'll see through the rest of Acts, several more missionary journeys. God will still work in him to lead an untold number of people into eternal life. God will still work through him to plant more churches than we'll ever know. If Paul's mistakes don't, don't disqualify him from his calling, then our mistakes cannot disqualify us from our calling. Our mistakes do not make us unfit for kingdom work. There's another reason I'm thankful that Luke includes this story. It's a reminder that sometimes, no matter how hard we try, conflict happens. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time together. Our conflicts likely aren't about who we want to take on our next missionary journey. Our conflicts are often with family, often with friends, and they are often about politics, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Israel or Gaza, gun rights, policing, social justice, education, racial and economic inequality, and even sometimes just the hurts and traumas we've endured inside of our family throughout our lives. How many of you have ever had an argument with someone over one of those topics? Vernon, thank you for actually responding with a raised hand. It's good. I'll just talk to you the rest of this. Okay, so it's just. How many times have you yelled or turned red in the face because you're so angry? What might it look like for us to engage conflict in a way that honors Jesus? If it's unavoidable and it's going to happen, how might we be able to do it in a way that honors Jesus? How 
might we be able to enter into a difficult conversation with someone who holds an opposing perspective, who believes they might be just as right and justified as we are, and try to do it in a way that maintains relationship. I'm going to use two words, definition and connection. And I'm going to look at you, Claire, through this because you're the, like the, the counselor in the room. And so if at any point I'm saying something and you're just like, that's not good, that's not good, <laughs> just subtly shake your head and I'll move on. So first, engaging conflict in a way that honors Jesus and hopefully seeks to maintain relationship. Definition. We should speak with clarity and, and courage. We should define who we are, what we think, what we feel, what we believe, what we want, and what we will and will not do. And then we create others to define themselves and what they think and what they believe and what they will or will not do. So many times in conflict, we don't actually say what we mean. Or so many times in conflict, we're just trying to figure out how to avoid the conflict or get out of the conflict as fast as we possibly can. So how do I need to like say a little bit of what I mean, but not too much of what I mean, so that maybe we can just kind of say a whole lot left unsaid and just get through this. Because we'll just end up back in that conflict a few weeks or a few months later. So, I'll say this, in order for us to be able to speak and communicate with definition, you have to actually know what you think and what you feel and what you will and will not do. Oftentimes our conflict is so bad and so irreparable because we haven't thought through what we need to communicate and it's just an emotional reaction. We're just triggered in a moment and we react and we fly off the handle and we start yelling and we start saying things we don't even mean. And if you're anything like some of my arguments have been or just if you're anything like me, you might end up 15 to 20 minutes into the argument and actually start having the thought, I'm not even sure what the argument was about, but we are still angry. Clear communication is essential. Jesus modeled this in an interaction he had with a person we oftentimes refer to as the rich young ruler. You might not think of this story as a moment of like conflict, and yet the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks a question. Jesus isn't looking at him and going, okay, this is a young influential person in our culture. He's got a lot of wealth. How do I need to answer his question so that he's going to receive it well and maybe want to become one of my followers? Instead, Jesus answers directly. He tells him to keep all the commandments. The rich young ruler replied by saying that he had kept every commandment since he was a child. And then Jesus says to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. The story ends with the rich young ruler walking away, choosing not to follow Jesus. Jesus communicates there with clarity and courage. He's not trying to say what the other person wants to hear. 
He answers the question. And Jesus is secure in himself enough to know that this rich, influential person, they could just walk away. And Jesus is going to be fine if they do. And that's what the rich young ruler does. And at no point does, and it, like Jesus allows him to walk away. Jesus doesn't do what we oftentimes do where he's like, whoa, 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 wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I seem to have upset you. What do you need me to say? How do you need me to say it? What do I need to do to get you to be part of this? Jesus looks at him, answers his questions. Jesus defines himself, responds truthfully. Jesus knows the whole time that he's totally okay whether this guy follows him or not. And then the guy decides, I'm not going to sell my stuff. I'm going to walk away. And Jesus, probably with sorrow in his heart, lets him. Some of us in that situation might not answer with the clarity or courage Jesus did. Some of us might see the rich young ruler's response and feel insecure or rejected by it. And so we might chase after him and modify our answers in the hopes of getting relationship from him. When we engage in a conflict, we need to communicate with clarity and courage. We need to let the other person do the same. So for you, in conflict, what does it look like for you to be able to enter it unemotionally, knowing what you think and feel and believe, and then defining it, and then giving the other person the opportunity to do the same. The second thing here is connection. We should seek to engage conflict in a way that honors the dignity of the person that we're arguing with. That means staying in our bodies and seeking to remain in control of our actions and reactions. Sometimes I, have, I say this to my children. I'm just going to speak this. Maybe it's elementary, but just as a reminder, we are responsible for all of our actions and all of our reactions. We love to look at people and say, like, well, what did you expect me to do? I don't know. I thought I could tell you how I was feeling without getting screamed at and called 19 names. We tend to blame our reactions on other people. And just because someone is rude or mean to us does not mean that we have to respond that way. We may feel like it gave us permission, but it doesn't mean that we have to. That means doing everything that we can, unlike Paul and Barnabas, to avoid heightened emotions, loud voices, or saying things we'd never otherwise say. Sometimes in a conflict, we can feel so attacked that we lash out in response. It's a self-protective defensive posture. We feel attacked, and because we feel attacked, we just start, we're like a boxer in a corner who just starts swinging with our words. And we say things that are simply intended to hurt or wound the other person, and sometimes we can use our words or emotions to try and control the other person. Jesus remained connected to Peter even after Peter denied him three times. Jesus remained connected to religious leaders that he vehemently disagreed with to the point that some of them started following him. I think there's this 
simple like way of thinking about it that like in one hand we define ourselves we hold what we know to be true about what we're thinking what we're feeling what we believe and who we know we are and what we will and we will not do and we hold those and with the other hand we are reaching towards the other person how do i hold these things and communicate them honestly but how do i do this in a way that is respectful and honoring that acknowledges the other person's dignity and that communicates throughout like look I'm not trying to win I'm not trying to dominate I'm not trying to control I'm actually trying to work through a difficult conversation because on the other side of it I want a deeper relationship so definition and connection and in all of it we need to try to keep primary things primary and secondary things secondary I think sometimes we need to ask ourselves, are we really arguing about something that matters? Because honestly, some of the arguments I've engaged in have not been about things that truly matter. I don't believe it honors Jesus when we hold our convictions higher than people. And I don't think Jesus wants us to cut people out of our lives just because they hold opposing views or convictions than we do. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying we should remain connected to people whose convictions or actions are harmful to us. If someone's actions or convictions or perspectives are harming us, I'm not saying you need to stay in that relationship. We should not stay in relationships that are damaging to us. And yet, we are to chase unity and seek peace in our relationship, and this doesn't mean agreement in all things. We should be trying to remember what is primary and what is secondary. And I know it might sound sacrilegious in our cultural moment, but our political affiliation is a secondary thing. Our stance on gun rights is a secondary thing. We have to seek unity and peace. We have to find a way to hold our convictions with one hand while reaching toward the other person with our other hand. And lastly, there's hope for all of the relationships in our lives that feel irreparably broken. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope. There's hope for reconciling those moments of profound failure and intense argument. It's Paul who writes in Colossians, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Jesus is the potential for every broken relationship to be reconciled. I've wondered sometimes if Paul could write words like these in Colossians because he himself knows the depth of Jesus' reconciling power. That maybe Paul was capable of writing words like these because he'd seen Jesus' reconciling power at work with Barnabas and John Mark. In 1 Corinthians, a letter written years after this story in Acts, Paul refers to Barnabas in positive terms. It's clear that they've reconciled. And then at the end of his second letter to Timothy, a letter that Paul wrote from inside a Roman prison cell just before his death, 
he instructs Timothy this way. He says, do your best to come to me quickly for Damas, Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get John Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. He's about, he's in jail. He is about to be killed. And one of the people he wants more than anyone else in the world is John Mark. This argument in Acts 15, it isn't the end of Paul's relationship with Barnabas or John Mark. Our conflicts and arguments don't have to be the end of our relationships either. There is hope in Jesus. We can be reconciled to the people that we've argued with, to the people that we disagree with. So church, let's engage conflict when we do in a way that honors Jesus. Let's create definition, let's seek connection, and if we fail, we can hope in Jesus and his power to reconcile. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for an example of profound relational failure and reconciliation. Teach us to be your people, Jesus. Teach us what it means to be your children who live your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive communion and Mr. Vernon is going to lead us.